Okay, Ephesians chapter 3. So, Bibles, apps. Um, let's look at this passage of Scripture. Um, we finished chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2, uh, you know, Paul is unpacking some great foundational theological truths. Uh, that's where we, uh, about predestination, that before time, you know, God chose. Uh, we read about uh, adoption uh, as we are adopted as his children. We read about redemption and forgiveness of sins based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so he's spilling out these incredible theological doctrines and then something happens right at the start of chapter 3. It's like he was permeating himself in these incredible, uh, um, hard to grasp the depth of these theological truths. And it's almost as though he gets over, overwhelmed. He's not overwhelmed because we believe in inspiration. But that's the little bit of the challenge of understanding inspiration because the divine, and yet we see he uses the human agent, man, to write down these scriptures. And he is still encased with all the aspects of being human. And it's like emotion explodes. It's almost like the, the, the theological and the emotion that matches that came together. Look at um, the very first part of 3.1. Look what happens. For this reason, I, Paul, Ephesians 3.1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. It's like he wants to go on. I notice, at least in my version, uh, in ESV, NIV, I don't know about what you all have. It has a hyphen. And then notice how verse 2 almost changes direction. 3 verses 2. Surely you've heard. Something grabbed him. God's directing him is of such importance, I want you to insert it right here. Because look at verse 14, chapter 3, 14. He picks up the thought from verse 1 again. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Uh, some refer to these scriptures here that we're going to look at this morning, you know, 1 through 13, as a parenthesis or a sidebar. Not because they are not important or they're secondary, but if anything, it's the opposite. It's to amplify the significance um, that all this theological truth was for a reason, and I want to um, underline, put in bold, exclaim loudly and clearly the content of 1 through 13 before we proceed any further. Wow, God is helping the fingers of truth to work its way deeper in the layers of our life. We're going to discover that we are a showcase of the mystery of God through our lives. And what's profound, 
We are a showcase of the mystery of God through our lives, not just to one another, not just to the neighbors, those we come in contact, but these beings in the spiritual realm. He does not want the significance of what he has written previously in chapters 1 and 2 to get lost in our theological files of our mind. That we don't understand. He doesn't want us to lose. The reason we even have theology is so that we can apply and learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul is awakened at this point. And this is, you know, sometimes we read Scripture as a textbook. I think of any time maybe to challenge yourself in how you come to read Scripture is right here. Because now it becomes very personal. Where, where Paul parts from this uh, uh, theological uh, um, presentation. And sometimes we lose when we just come to our scriptures and think of it as a theological textbook, a catalog of theological knowledge, and not remember that these are personal personal letters that Paul's writing with the believers in Ephesus in mind. He's awakened to the importance about the practicality of practice working out the mystery of God in all of us. So this morning we're going to look at this section of Scripture and three things I'll focus on. Uh, Paul, the steward of the mystery, the mystery revealed, and then the mystery today. So let's jump to the first one. Paul. The Apostle Paul, he is the steward of this mystery that we will find that God uh, is going to reveal. Look at verse 2. Surely you have heard. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. So the first thing we need to understand that Paul has been called, he has been given this mantle, this responsibility to uh, be a steward, to administrate, to manage the proclamation, the, the sharing what this mystery is. Stewardship is something that somebody who owns gives to you, and you now are responsible to be a wise steward of it. This is a heavy mantle that Paul has. We should appreciate the role that he has and his faithfulness in carrying it out. But he has it because God gave it to him. Not, no, no other reason. That's why we read that it's a stewardship of God's grace. He did not earn this position. In fact, if anything, he would have wanted to run the opposite direction. Look at verse 7. We, we see again that uh, uh, this role that Paul has in the formation of the Christian movement. Um, I became a servant of this gospel, not by anything I did, but by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Through the giving of God's grace. 
His authority, Paul's authority, is based upon the call given to him from God, not from personal experience. However, however, his personal experience makes the theological truth explode. I think that's probably why when he comes to verse 2, he just changes direction. Because this is very personal for Paul. He is called and given the stewardship of the ministry, but he also lived it out. His life showcased the mystery. Paul's life pointed to the mystery how Paul was an enemy of Jesus Christ. Meaning at one time he was an enemy of God. But Paul was rescued from his own anger that alienated him from God. Paul lived it out. His anger blinded him to the point that he thought he was serving God. But in actuality, he was fighting against God. He was that blinded by his anger. Acts 9.4 tells us, Saul, Saul, this is the conversion account in Acts 9. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, Paul says. And the voice from heaven, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul detested Jesus Christ. He detested those who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. In Acts 26, when Paul goes to appear before King Agrippa, and he is um, for a hearing, and he's giving an account of himself. Listen to these words. This was the path that... uh, the Apostle Paul was going down, Acts 26, 9-11. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme me, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul knew firsthand what it meant to go from being an enemy of God to being a steward, a minister of God. To go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. And you know, there's a little bit of Paul in all of us, so to speak. Our personality might not be as Paul where we are aggressive in how anger towards Christ is expressed. In all personality types, though, there is a self an unhealthy self that is tenacious, that is wanting 
desiring in ways that often pit us against the ways of God. It's a mystery that any of us would surrender personal gain for a greater good. Paul's life story is playing out the mystery of God. How can enemies enemies be made friends? The mystery is rooted in the character of God. God himself, the being God. Particularly that character quality we call grace. Paul goes from slaying the followers of Jesus Christ to serving them. Paul goes from being filled with anger to having peace. This peace is priceless. In fact, we see from the Apostle Paul, it's even worth suffering for. Look at 3.13. I ask you, he's talking to the Ephesians, he's concerned that they're going to be disheartened because he's in prison on their account. And he says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul has discovered a a peace that transcends that prison jail cell. Paul has discovered a a peace that uh, transcends suffering. He's experiencing a, a freedom that the jail cell can't take away from him. Paul is the perfect messenger for God to use to reveal this mystery. He is perfect because God revealed the mystery to him, but also because he lived it out. And the mystery is played out each time any one of us surrenders to God. So what is this mystery that's so important that we see in in the text here? Ephesians 3, 4 to 5. Four and five. Look at that with me. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. Let's stop there. You know, the first thing, this word mystery can confuse us. So we got to get out of our minds what we typically think about mystery. If you read mystery books or watch mysteries on TV, that's not what this is. It's not like a crime, crime scene where you're looking for evidence and clues so that you might be able to discover what happened. Mysterion is quite different, the Greek word for mystery. This kind of mystery that... Paul is speaking of does not allow for humans to be able to deduce, to use logic, discover clues or reason oneself to get the answer for what is happening. The only way humans can understand is that God chose to reveal. 
You might have received academic awards, such as got straight A's, you might have got your doctorate. But even with those credentials, you would not know this mystery unless God chose to reveal it. Intuition, reason, logic, or evidence will not reveal this mystery. All of those things are good that I mentioned. The list of them are good. They are important tools that can point you to the mystery, but it does not reveal it. God's character of grace is on display in the fact that He chose to plainly reveal the mystery. One writer sums it up this way, the mystery of God cannot be discovered by way of speculation, nor by investigation, but only revelation. We also see from this text that there were glimpses of this mystery, uh, the grace of God in the Old Testament, how God protected people, how God saved His people. There were pictures in the Old Testament uh, of uh, foreshadowing, sometimes we call in anticipation of Jesus Christ's coming, like the ark that saved Noah's family, pointing the way to the day when the Messiah would come and save those who placed their trust in Him. But look at what verse 3, 4 to 5 tells us. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been revealed now. Plainly, clearly. God was still the same God in the Old Testament expressing Himself. But He chose, when the time was right, to bring forth Christ and make this mystery plain to all humanity. Ephesians 3.6 This mystery... He makes it as plain as can be. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. In Christ, he's telling, particularly those who had dividing walls that separated people, that had a, a social system that bestowed a, a value based on externals. Christ says anyone, even your enemy, can go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. we would have to put ourselves back in the culture of Paul to really appreciate the radical nature of what Paul is expressing here. The radical nature to, to, to think that a, a Jew would even remotely consider a Gentile as possible being amongst the chosen people of God. There was great hostility. Uh, 
Gentiles were considered dog. And by Gentiles, we're just talking about non-Jewish by heritage. A Gentile was considered a dog, unclean. No association at all. The practical implications of this mystery was made known amongst the followers clearly in Acts 10 when Peter goes to Simon the Tanner's house. In Acts chapter 10, Simon, a Jew, goes to um, Simon the Tanner house who is a Gentile and there's a double layer barrier of hostility in what Peter is doing. First, he's going to a Gentile's house. And this uh, person had an occupation of dealing with dead animals and the hides. And that was considered unclean. Peter's life now is, is also foreshadowing this mystery being out, played out for us to see. The social structure, the tradition that bestowed power to individuals and certain groups was being undermined by this message. This message then and still today, if you allow the fingers of this mystery to sink down deep enough, has radical implications today in how you think about other people. Radical implications. The mystery is that in Christ, the dividing walls of hostility that divide people and groups in Jesus Christ are torn down. There's no room for anger that divides. Gentiles are equal partners, equal heirs to the promises of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, there's no room for prejudices, judgmentalism, and bigotry. Do you hear subtleness of your voices in your thoughts within your own head that still express themselves or manifest that deep within you there's some place that you still harbor this division? In Revelation 7-9, the scripture tells us there, after this I looked, thinking of the future time. when we're, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. There is no walls of hostility that divide people groups in God's kingdom. Jews have a special place in biblical history. They are considered the chosen uh, people of, of God because of the promise given to Abraham. The mystery is that God gives all of us different tasks, responsibilities. And at the same time, he values all people, despite the different tasks and responsibilities, He values all equally as His precious children. 
Paul would tell you the mystery of God is so freeing that though physically in a Roman cell, he is freer than ever. Hate, anger, bitterness, where you look down on others, Paul knows that is what really imprisons you more so than the physical cell. Love of others, even your enemy, is what frees you, even if you're in a cell. Therefore, if you are free from the seeds of anger and bitterness towards people, even if suffering, you are freer than ever. Paul discovered that he was a prisoner of his own anger. The mystery is that God rescued him from himself and the self-destruction and the bent that he was putting on himself and those around the followers of Christ. The mystery is that anybody such as Paul or you and I would go from being a lover of self to a lover of God. Giving grace to a friend who has wronged you is difficult. But giving grace to an enemy is a mystery. This has deep implications for us today. And with this, we'll close with uh, the mystery today. While made known theologically, knowing it personally, it still worked out. It's a work in progress. It's ongoing. How we choose to showcase this mystery, not only to neighbors, not only to one another in here, but look at Ephesians 3, 10 to 11, 10 and 11. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, how we engage as a church has ramifications in the spiritual realm. This, uh, when it says uh, through the church, uh, His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God. This word manifold means variegated, diffused, multiple, multifaceted, a great variety of forms. That's what the church is. Of different people, different ethnic backgrounds, different jobs, colors. I know you can interpret church both universal, 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 meaning all believers in Christ, and that's often what we want to go to for our own comfort. But it also talks about the church being a local assembly in a specific geographical group, a place such as the church at Ephesus, a very specific group of people. Which are the best? Which is the best to think about the church in terms of a location for this tapestry of color that's going to speak volumes, not just to this world, but into the heavenly realms than what happens right here. And when it talks about to the um, rulers and authorities in heavenly realms, uh, at least the commentators that I, I read, they weren't certain whether it's of the evil nature 
or the righteous nature, angels or, or demons. The point being, regardless, this uh, thing that we call church, we tend to just deal with it uh, from a human level, but what we're seeing here, there are spiritual ramifications in how we go about it, how we engage, how we participate or don't participate. It's here where there's a price to be paid for this manifold nature to come together being united in Christ. That will speak volumes, not just to one another here, but whatever God wants to accomplish. We're just being faithful and letting God do what He wants in the realm. The problem in the church is not tension and anger and frustration from our differentness, but it's the lack of tension and anger and frustration over the right things. Look at what happened after 9-11 when the United States was attacked by terrorists. It was at that time as a nation we put aside a lot of differentness and the tension that was uh, amongst us that came with that differentness because we saw the real enemy that truly wanted to destroy. We spend more time fighting uh, one another as opposed to the real enemy. The church and life operates on these two levels. And it has ramifications. Choosing one's posture toward church is often determined only on the one dimension, the physical, my comfort, what appeals to me. Consider your role, what happens by your participation in the spiritual, in the heavenly realms that we are not conscious of. God, who justly could have kept the wall of hostility between us and him, God chose to destroy it. There's no wall keeping you from God except the ones that you construct. There is a wall of hostility. Is there a wall of hostility that is keeping you from God? Have you noticed how your anger closes your mind? Have you noticed how your own angry thoughts imprisons you? What keeps you from surrendering your anger and truly be free? Showcasing the incredible mystery that if God, the only righteous person, who had reason, because I was a, a lover of self over a lover of God, had reason to erect a wall, chose to tear it down. Why would I not, God? Let's bow in prayer. and Let's bow in prayer and lead us into... Um, I'm going to go back and read... Ephesians 2, 
close and just bow your head. I, I want these words back from Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. I'm going to read them. I just want us for it to lead us into a, a posture of allowing it to seep deeper in our lives um, to the point we might start dismantling brick by brick of the wall that we may have put up, whether it's a wall towards God, a wall towards a family member. Uh, but however anger and hostility has alienated you and separated you to start brick by brick, taking it down, by being overwhelmed by thanksgiving for what God has done for us, Listen to these words from Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose, the mystery, was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. God, thank you for choosing peace, not anger, and breaking down the wall of hostility.